2 Kings 13, these are the words of God. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of, over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Then the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hatzael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hatzael, all their days. So Jehovah has pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then Yahweh gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left the army of Jehoahaz only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them. For the king of Syria had destroyed them, and made them like dust at the threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, and all that he did, and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash his son reigned in his place. In the thirty-seventh year of Joash king of Judah, Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz became king over Israel in Samaria, and reigned sixteen years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of Yahweh's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. So he struck three times. And stopped. And the man of ang God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Syria until you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died. And they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was. They were burying a man. Suddenly they spied a band of raiders. They put the man in the tomb of Elisha and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And Hatzael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But Yahweh was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hatziel, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoahaz, son of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, son of Hatziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Well, the first thing we see here again, uh, and uh, this is uh, sort of like sometimes in our school, as you do the recursive teaching, uh, you get the same lesson, it feels like, over and over again, three times in every grade, uh, and you're several grades in, and you're thinking, why do I need this lesson again? Uh, Well, in uh, academic school, you actually might not. Uh, It's quite possible to be uh, a seven-year-old who gets algebra for the first time and knows his algebra well enough at seven that uh, when they give him the same thing over and over again till the time he gets to seventh grade, he, he didn't need it. I've known people like that. But because our hearts are not like our heads and they are bent against God, we need the lesson over and over again. And this is one that we need over and over again is that God wants to be worshipped only the way that God has said to worship him, and that this is so vitally important, not just because he's God, not just because he's holy, not just because coming to him in our way is to come to him as if we are God instead of him, which is the height of idolatry. He, being God, is the one who decides how to worship. But because, as we discover in the whole of the scripture, the way of coming to him is ultimately not merely the actions that he commands to be the mechanism through which we worship. But all of those actions are designed to point to uh, until the fulfillment, even uh, when Jesus is the one who leads the worship. And to come to him by any other actions is the same as coming to him apart from Jesus Christ. And so even those who trust in the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice and his righteousness, when they come in any other way than prescribed through the Bible, they come in a way that is in contradiction to the saving faith and to the glory that and to the glory that God has appointed for his son as the point of all of history, that Christ would be glorified as the alone way of atonement for sin and peace with God and pleasure in his presence. But we are hard-hearted. We say, what's the harm in a little man-made worship? Well, there's one thing that God wanted out of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. And the one thing was to stop doing something. Stop worshiping in the way invented by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Even the only other thing that is recorded of Jehoahaz here is that when things got hard, he pleaded with Yahweh. He's a Yahweh worshiper. 
at least externally, superficially. But notice the reason that Yahweh listens to him. It's not like he says about Ahab when he says to Elijah, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself? No, it's, it's, it's not anything to do with Jehoahaz. Yahweh listened to him for he saw the oppression of Israel. And that's the, that's the only reason. In fact, after, immediately after saying he gives them a deliverer and the deliverer is his son. We'll get to that in a moment. He says, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who had made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So he used golden cows in Bethel and Dan, and he used the discount Jeroboam worship in the capital city in Samaria. That's all he did. I mean, the only other thing he did was get so battered by Hatziel that what was left of the army is like the the bits of dust that are in the air when you go to the threshing floor and you beat the grain and there's a little bit of chaff flying around in the air. So his whole reign is he did not depart from the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and even when he was pleading with God, pleading with Yahweh, he did not depart from those sins so that there was no, see how he has humbled himself. And he got so defeated that the uh, the military might of the northern kingdom was reduced to chaff blowing around in the air. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? He reigned 17 years. And the only thing that is recorded is that he didn't stop man-made worship. He could not come with the excuse, I didn't invent it. It was hundreds of years worth of tradition. It was supposedly celebrating your name, O Yahweh. It was supposedly celebrating your uh, your works of redemption, O Yahweh. None of those excuses could be made. The one thing God wanted out of him was that he would stop that man-made Yahweh worship that had been in place for hundreds of years before he came onto the scene. And so we see the greatness of the sin of man. And we ourselves then are responsible continually to evaluate ourselves before the Lord. What have I what have I brought to you in worship that is from me? Whether it's in the actions of worship or as is differently the case every week. Am I coming in my own strength? Am I coming with pride over how I'm not? doing the traditional worship? Am I coming hoping that how well I do it uh, will be the worthiness of the worship? We must come only with Christ, only with the goodness of God. Not just reforming, but giving him the credit for all the reformation. That we would be overwhelmed with the goodness and the righteousness and the power and the mercy of our God every time we come before him. And that we would come knowing that Jesus is all of these things. And if we do not, then whatever other reformation we make, however other uh, faithful we are, uh, even if we do mighty things that other men would record about us, the story of our life before Yahweh might be 
we did evil in the sight of Yahweh. His son also, named after Joash, king of Judah, Yahweh worshippers, ostensibly now in the north and in the south, both with incomplete reformations. Joash of the south did not um, uh, did not get rid of the high places, and he was lazy about the reconstruction of the temple, and uh, he paid more attention to brick and mortar than he did to the public worship, uh, so that the materials for the right worship of God were not reproduced. Uh, and then when he got in a little hot water, he uh, he sent uh, all of the, the, he gutted what was left of the materials for the public. That was what happened in the south. What happened in the north? The Yahweh worshiper, but he didn't get rid of the worship of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Uh, and he made friends enough with the Yahweh worshiper in the south. It looked like a golden age in the religion of the northern kingdom and of the southern kingdom. But that is not the Lord's assessment. And so we are not before God to say, oh, well, look at all the reformation in the church. We are in a new happy age. Unless we are assessing it biblically. And of course, uh, Amaziah actually does what is right uh, in the sight of Yahweh, uh, but not like his father David when we get to chapter 14. But things decline so much under Joash in the north. Remember in the south, you know, when, when there was this agreement with one another, um, you had the uh, Jehoshaphat naming his kid Jehoram. Uh, after the Joram of the north. And now, uh, in the north, uh, as they're like-minded, uh, you have uh, the uh, Jehovah has naming his kid Joash after the king in the south. Um, but things had so declined in the northern kingdom that uh, we read the, about northern Joash that he had war with Amaziah, king of Judah, in verse 12. So things decline can decline very quickly after a reformation that is merely superficial. So you see the greatness of their sin. That was the only thing that's recorded, right? Jehoash, son of Jehoash, becomes king over Israel and Samaria. He reigns 16 years, just one year less than his daddy. His whole reign is, he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Note that phrase, all the sins it's not just the use of the calves. It's the alternative priesthood. It's the alternative <laughs> calendar. It's all of the man-made worship. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might. This goes immediately from verse 11 into verse 12 into the summary formula. And this is writing about somebody who was the deliverer promised. Uh, in uh, Or described in verse 5, not promised, but described in verse 5. And he did three times defeat Ben-Hadad, son of Hatziel. But that doesn't even make it into the verse 12. All he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. So the greatness of our sin. And how great then must be the atonement of Jesus Christ. How great must be the worth of his person. The perfection of his righteousness. The completeness of his sacrifice. That even for sinners... He might make atonement and we might have peace with God 
through him and pleasure in God forever from him and with him. And so you see the greaterness of God's grace. And we have already seen this. Why did Yahweh listen to Jehoahaz? Verse 4. It was not because of how Jehoahaz had humbled himself. It was for he saw the oppression of Israel. In other words, the tears of Elisha the prophet, as he stood in front of Hatziel, who was just then a general in the army, you remember, when he went to uh, to anoint him, uh, and, uh, and he was crying, and Hatziel said, why are you crying like that? And he said, because I see all that you're going to do to the Lord's people. It was to the Lord's wicked people under a wicked king. And yet the man who was the mouth of God reflected the compassion of God as streams of tears came from his eyes. And now the God of whom he was a reflection is telling us that he is an accurate picture of him. That as the Lord looks at evil Jehoahaz, who is reigning over evil Israel, that deserve every bit of what Hatziel is doing to them, it still matters to him. He still pities this wicked people, particularly because he has put his name on them, and they are the children of fathers to whom he has made promises. You see that uh, uh, towards... The end of the passage, Yahweh was gracious to them. Verse, sorry, verse 23, Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them. Again, it's not because of their repentance. It's because of something in God, not something in them. In, uh, in verse five, it was, uh, or in verse four, it was the compassion. In verse five, it's the promise. It's the covenant. Verse 23, sorry, in verse 4, it was the compassion. In verse 23, it's the covenant. Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. There was still hope for repentance. There was still the possibility that this God who is having compassion upon them, even in the midst of the wickedness that would eventually bring the exile and bring that, that great tragedy in the midst of the covenant, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob don't go away with Assyria in the north, and they don't go away with Babylon in the south. Those are, those are tragedies in the midst of the covenant. They're going to be fulfilled at Calvary. They're going to be fulfilled in Jesus. They're going to be fulfilled in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, south and north. And then all the earth as children of Abraham are gathered in from all the nations. But there is this, to us, hypothetical conditionality. Where in the way that God has ordained to do things, they do depend on what we do. What we do matters. And so God in his compassion upon them is not yet destroying them, but he will exile them from their, for their sin. And there's real conditionality, even to the point of Elisha saying, as the mouth of God to northern Joash, if you had kept striking with those arrows, 
you would have destroyed Syria. But he who knows theologically in his head that Elisha is the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, and his father, his father, verse 14. Just like Elijah had been the chariots of Israel and its horsemen when Elisha saw Elijah being taken up into glory. Uh, to whom Ahab at one point said, My father, my father, my father, shall I kill them? But this man who knew theologically that Yahweh is God and that Elisha is the mouth of, of God to him and that the word of God is what protects the northern kingdom and that he should obey. You, know, you notice the staccato here. Uh, Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on the bow. Puts his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window. He opens it. Shoot. He shot. And he says, the arrow of Yahweh's deliverance. And it's the same, it's from the same root as the deliverer that is described in verse five, which is how we know that Joash is the deliverer that was promised. And he says, the arrow of Yahweh's deliverance, the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrow. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Now, it's obvious that this is something that isn't all one moment command because the, the, the king does it three times. He understands what is being told to him. But the prophet does not say, stop striking. It's like that, that first exercise that I'm emotionally scarred about from fifth grade <laughs> when you had to write the directions for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you had to be super detailed. And I didn't say to open the jar. I said to put the spoon into the jar. Uh, and when it came time to have your instructions graded uh, and uh, everything was in front of me and I was told to follow my instructions uh, and I got to the put your spoon in the jar and I started to open the jar and the teacher said, nope, don't open the jar. Didn't put it in your instructions. And I tried to put the spoon. Of course, I couldn't put it through the top of the jar if I was strong enough. I mean, if it was made of plastic anyway. He's being instructed at that level, isn't he? <laughs> take the arrow, take the arrow. Put your hand on the arrow, put your hand on the arrow. <laughs> Strike. He didn't say stop, but he stopped. There's a picture, isn't it, of the incomplete obedience of the rest of his life? And the prophet says, if you had kept striking, you would have you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you destroyed it. There is, under the sovereign providence and plan of God, the genuine usefulness, the genuine instrumentality of what we do. And if we don't do it, we have ourselves to thank for the misery of that comes from our failure. Even though if we do do it, we have God to thank for the goodness that comes from grace-produced, grace-sustained obedience. If he had struck the ground five or six times with the arrow, and he had defeated Ben-Hadad six times, and Syria was destroyed and could no longer afflict the northern kingdom, we would not say, 
Praise be to Joash the northern who struck the ground enough times and defeated Syria enough times, would we? We would say, look at the amazing grace and mercy of Yahweh who had compassion even on a wicked people and the deliverer that he raised up. He not only raised him up but sustained him for six defeats of Ben-Hadad king of Syria until there was no Syria and they had no king and there was no Ben-Hadad. But there's genuine instrumentality, isn't there? To us, it feels like hypothetical and conditional, but it's a real thing, and God shows it to us. What you do makes a difference because God has ordained to make the difference through it. And if we do not do it, we should accuse and condemn ourselves. If the Lord causes for every one of you to be converted and reformed and walk with him, and marry well, and rear children better than I have, and uh, he blesses the uh, the work of your hands and your spouse's hands, uh, not only materially, but especially spiritually with your children. And my my grandchildren drew a better job rearing their households before the Lord, leading them in worship at both beginning and end of every day so that nobody ever has to have an argument about covenant theology again because they know they live in a house that worships God at the beginning and end of every day and that all of the stuff in the middle is the, the worship of God in the life, just like in the worship of God in the assembling. And so a covenanted house with God is is something that is, of course it is, they don't sit around and argue about covenant theology on Lord's Day afternoons with a bunch of sophomoric rubbish. People don't know that they're, what they're talking about and what they do know they talk about with, with pride and have no idea. If the Lord so blesses that those are just ancient memories from a sad, dark time in the church by compared to the light of life and reformation that the Lord will have brought, we will not say... Oh, great-grandpa did such a great job. We're going to say, praise be to God, who is so merciful, even to a sinner like great-grandpa, that God has done this. But if you apostatize, if you grow up to decide that you're not sure that the Bible is true, and you're not sure that Jesus is God, and it all turns out to have been superficial, I will not say, or I would not be right in saying, God, forgive me and prevent me if I do say. I don't know what happened. I raised them right. I will say, this is exactly what I deserve. For all that was lacking. All that I should have done that I didn't do. All that was incorrect uh, and insincerely done. And incompletely done that I should have done that I did do. So it's very important that we see the the reality of the the conditionality and the necessity of doing what God says to do, even though we would never give ourselves credit for it, and we would always accuse ourselves for having failed to do it. But look at the mercy of God, who even for this people who are the example of how not to do reformation, he has compassion on them that is tied to the tears streaming down Elisha's face 
in front of Hazael a couple chapters ago. He has covenant with them that cannot be broken as he has sworn himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he gives us just a hint of the one who will come and keep our side of the covenant. Elisha goes into the grave. He stays in the grave. But even in the grave, his role as the mouthpiece of God has a lasting effect. The words that the man spoke must still be true. The mercy that the man preached must still be true. Even his bones, which have no soul with them, are still being honored by God. We don't know when verses 20 to 21 take place. It might be the first spring after Elisha was buried. It might be decades later. The whole thing is is out of order, right? We're back with Jehoahaz in verse 22. Uh, so we, we um, the Joash stuff, uh, northern Joash stuff from earlier in the chapter happens after verse 22, etc. But at some point, Israel is in such a low place that they see some Moabite marauders and they cancel a funeral uh, and quickly remove uh, the rocks from Elisha's grave to throw the body in there uh, because they don't have time to dig a fresh one. And the man touches Elisha's bones and he springs to life. And how shocking that would, what do they do with him now? They, they got this guy who was a, who was a corpse a moment ago and they're, they're in a hurry to run from Moabite raiders and now he's been resurrected. And you, you have all these questions, but they're not answered because the point is in the resurrecting power of the word of God. And we have lots of questions, don't we, about Matthew 27 and verses 52 and 53. Because it tells us in the in the middle of Jesus crying out and he dies and the temple of the curtain, temple of the curtain, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom and the graves open and believers from all over Jerusalem come out of their graves and are seen. And we're like, well... Is that all the Holy Spirit is going to tell us about that? I mean, did they like live with their families again and like resume their lives the way Lazarus did until they died again? Or was it like a couple of hours thing? And then they all kind of returned to their graves and put the rocks back onto them and uh, lay down and died again. Is that all the Holy Spirit's going to, yes, that is all the Holy Spirit's going to tell us about it. Because the main point is that the word that was in the mouth of Elisha has come as a man in Jesus and his death could do from a distance and to a multitude what happened to that man who was thrown into Elisha's grave sometime after he died. And we have all these questions and maybe we'll find out in glory and maybe we won't. But you see how there's a hint at something greater to come. There is a greater word to come. There is a greater prophet to come. There is a greater resurrection to come. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here in this chapter the greatness of our sin. May the Lord grant to us fuller repentance. The greaterness of his grace. 
May he give us always to remember his compassion, how he pitied, how he is perfectly seen even in Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem that was about to murder him. The greaterness of God's grace and his commitment to his covenant that cannot be broken and has been perfectly kept by Christ. But even the greater grace that was to come, that all of this pointed forward to Jesus, and that there is still a greater resurrection to come, isn't there? Because we know what happens in the last day when the graves are opened and the unjust are resurrected too and they are cast body and soul into hell. But the righteous are resurrected and they do stay with him forever and they are perfect in holiness and they are perfect in happiness. And the Lord still holds that before us as further incentive to turn from our sin, to know his compassion, to hope in his grace, and all of it, especially in Christ. May the Lord grant to us to know him that way in the day-to-day of our life, and to know that what we do matters, so that we may follow his word by his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the help of your spirit and understanding it. And now we ask, O God, that your spirit would continue to help us, continue to help our understanding. We know that we have not exhausted the teaching of the text, but we pray, O Lord, for increased faith, increased conviction about what we understand, uh, turning from our sin, trusting in you, increased knowledge of you and your holiness, but also your mercy and your compassion, your faithfulness to your promises, your power to sustain us in grace, your power to make what we do bear fruit. Oh Lord, we need faith from your Holy Spirit. Give us to trust in Christ and conform us more to him through the renewing of our minds, we ask, so that we would not be conformed to this world, but would offer our bodies as living sacrifices by view and in response to your mercies. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.